Hey, it's Zoe Routh, and I am a Canadian-Australian who loves to work with CEOs and teams on the people stuff in leadership. My guest today is a former CEO and also a coach and mentor to CEOs. His name is Cameron Schwab. You might know him. He's been pretty famous. He has been the youngest CEO of Richmond Football Club at just 24 years old, just a young pup. He has the history of the game in his family. And then from that initial starting point, he went on to be CEO of Melbourne and Fremantle Footy Clubs as well. On his long journey of 25 years in different roles as CEO, he has wrestled with mental health, something we don't dive a lot into today's interview, but sort of sits there as a backdrop to some of his challenges. He is a parent to a transgender daughter, and that we do talk about, and he reveals some really fascinating insights about what it is to journey alongside someone who is having their own ups and downs in life, paralleling his own. He has this year also undergone major surgery for prostate cancer. We don't talk a lot about that. We did before and after the show, and yet he's very open about it. And I think it just adds another layer of insight and sensitivity and remarkableness, not a word, but so appropriate to this glorious, delightful man and conversation. He is an artist and a gentleman. I know you're going to love this show. And if you do love it, please share, press the little share button on your device and share this interview with someone who needs to hear Cameron's beautiful insights. Okay, let's do it. Cameron Schwab, absolutely delightful to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thanks, Ellie. Um I look forward to this conversation like I look forward to every conversation. I think we can uh, we can cover some interesting ground. Absolutely. We've sort of got a little bit in common, but a lot out common. Is there such an out common? I don't know if that's a word, but we, uh, we've got... Uh, in common and not in common. Not in common, <laughs> out common. We would just create a word. Well, a couple of things we do have in common is that we both work with CEOs and we're both obsessed with good leadership. The one thing that is out of common is that you have been a CEO of several large organizations. In that, in your journey of leadership, both as someone who supports leaders now and someone who's been a CEO and in very influential, high-profile leadership positions, how do you define leadership? Probably the first stage of it would be, or first step would be, the notion of taking responsibilities. So... One, accepting that decisions made within the organisation, both good and bad, somehow rest with you, knowing that you're not going to be making all of those decisions. And so, for example, I would say if a CEO is doing something other than making 51, 49 decisions, somehow they've either become a bit too controlling in their own way or they've got the wrong people. And then by extension, they have to surround themselves with people who are good at making the 60-40 decisions. And if they haven't got that, well, the the core and and probably the most challenging and the great opportunity of leadership is how we deal with ambiguity, how we deal with uncertainty, how we deal with conflict. Well, that sort of framing of it gives you your best chance of it. So ultimately, it's about taking responsibility. And taking responsibility is then, by definition, giving over responsibility is is creating space for other people. And and then I'd say that the next phase is just one of the modelling of the behaviour. 
that if we're going to talk to what's important in the organisation and you don't behave accordingly, or if you actually don't behave accordingly, which we're because human nature will kick in for all of us, is you then own up to the fact that you didn't behave accordingly. And, and so that there's then a consistency between what you say and what you do, so that the modelling aspect of it. And I would say, Zoe, in all honesty, that both of those things took me way too long to learn. And, <laughs> and I've probably learnt more about it in the last phase of my leadership. I got to be a CEO for a long time, so it was close to 25 years. That is a long time. It was a long time. It was four different CEO roles. Then with the power of reflection, firstly, the recognition that it was unlikely I was going to be given that opportunity again in, in the type of CEO. I, I was only a CEO because I loved being a CEO in elite sport, which in my case was the AFL. I, I had no ambition to be a CEO in any other environment. That was It was never an ambition to be a a business leader as for the sake of being a business leader. I, I it was to lead a football team in the sport that I loved. That was how it played out, which is then being a CEO and then being able to practice it for a long time and work out that a lot of the things of which I thought that I was building a CEO game around were in fact not going to be the things which were going to sustain. And in one case uh, became career defining because I got the sack and I had to rebuild. And if you get the sack in elite sport, well, it's quite public. You don't... Totally. You don't have to explain to people that you got the sack in most cases. Because uh, they read it in the news and saw the interview. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and yeah, they did. And even as basic as I never had to ring my mum and say, look, I got the sack, mum. <laughs> that, was, that, was that was never a thing because she'd, she'd heard about it. So we just pick up on something that you mentioned there about what you thought you were building as a CEO turned out to be not quite right and you got the sack. That sounds like a significant learning experience. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, no, no, it was. And it probably, again, two levels. The first one is that because um, I, I was a young CEO, I was, I was 24-year-old CEO. So, Oh, my God, that's so, so young. Oh, my God. And I was young too. I, I, I was probably, I was probably in, in a technical sense, I had a background which was more than, more than a 24-year-old, as in I'd grown up in the game of Australian football. My father was a very prominent person. I grew up in and around the sport. Uh, I probably had an insight into the game and a, I was privy to certain decision-making and how it actually worked. I got to see the human side of the game before most people do. I, I cut through the folklore and the emotion of the sport before most people did. So I'd worked that out relatively early, but I certainly didn't have a CEO game. So the technical side of the game, I felt that I could uh, hold at least enough of my own, as in I could hold conversations with other football people about the game itself who could play, who couldn't play, who could win, who couldn't win, that type of stuff. Whilst there's always a, um, uh, it's always growing and it's always changing, at least I thought I knew enough. But what I hadn't, my influence in terms of the, the leaders that I, I looked up to were of a generation which was very different to mine. Because I was young, I was 20 years younger than most of the people who were CEOs of, uh, of that era who were the products of very much a command and control way of operating because their parents were veterans or their parents, they were very influenced by, you know, we do this for this reason and that all knowledge and expertise actually sat at the top. That was sort of the feeling that it was all, all the brilliance, all the genius was with the people who 
who held the positions. And I, and I saw that. And somehow I thought that that's how I had to be. Well, clearly none of the genius saw that sat with me because I'm 24 years of age. And, and so I, I tried to play a game which was far more, this is what you do. I was a directed, I was just very directed in my way. And people must have looked at me because I looked like I was about 14. And, but I managed to do it at Richmond. And Richmond was my club growing up as well. So I was CEO of Richmond. And I got to do it uh, for six, almost seven years. So I hung in there for long enough. So I did my growing up in the role in, in lots of ways. And then I just got ahead of myself in many ways. So I, and I shouldn't have because there was no reason for me to be. And I've often thought that there's, I've never made a good decision probably in life, certainly as a CEO, when my ego had kicked in, where I, where I lacked humility or I lacked decency as it related to myself. When I got angry, and in sport, there's a lot of anger. There's just a lot of anger. You know, it's aggressive. Um, there's a whole lot of people trying to get their own way. There's a lot of frustration when, when they don't. And the third one is, is when I never showed enough courage. And they're often related because the humility and the courage, I think, are very, are very related. And there's probably too many instances of those three things happening in of the various phases of my my CEO career, of which I now look back on. Probably, it, it's a shame is a big word, but that's almost how it feels. I don't think as much as other people would think. I think about the decisions that I got wrong for other reasons, as in you chose the wrong coach or you recruited the wrong player or you made the wrong call. Those decisions, are, they're always going to be up for grabs. And there's also, you're judged in hindsight. You're not judged based on the information and knowledge that was available to us at that time. So if you recruited the wrong player and someone was drafted one choice after who ends up being a champion, well, and there was an example. There's a wonderful player when I was at Fremantle, uh, Matthew Pavlich. He was a 300-game player, one of the superstars of the game. And he famously went fourth in the draft. And the club who recruited the player number three, his name was Aaron Fiora, who was a very good AFL player. But Richmond were always talked about as having recruited the wrong player at that choice. And when I arrived at Fremantle, Fremantle people told me they had him in the same order. It's just that Richmond had taken Fiora first. So a lot of our decision-making can be enriched you know, or killer for, for different reasons. So building a game around the who I was piece took a lot time, long time to come. And, and I realised probably over time that the thing that I was going to get my most energy from was the teaching element of leadership. That I, I found that there was a, rather than the directive element, and, and if I, often I just say to leaders, can you stop talking and start teaching for a while? Just just embrace the teaching, the teacher in you. What do you mean by teacher? Like what kinds of things are you teaching as a leader? Uh, it can be what you define all forms of teaching by, I think, is how I bring my wisdom forward in a way to help you grow, develop, evolve, become. And the other thing you find out about, if you're going to embrace the teacher in you as a, as a leader, you actually get to find out who the learners are in the room as well. So if you've got a senior team, as a CEO, for instance, if you've got a senior leadership team, you've got no learners in the room, you're in trouble. You're in trouble straight away because they're never going to be those 60, 40 decision makers for you. They're going to come to you looking for the answers to the 80, 20s, you know, and, and you can't afford that. You can't, you can't allow that to happen because you just can't be distracted by that. 
it's a big enough job as it is, let alone having to make decisions often where you don't know as much about it because they're of a technical nature that which that person knows more than what you do as well. So there's those elements to it. So the, the teaching thing came a little bit too late. And also the the notion of it's okay to be a, a leader who is an expression of who you are. Whereas I, I reckon I tried in the first instance to be sort of some popular version of other leaders and and of course you're going to do you're going to learn from them and, and and i had some wonderful mentors some mentors who wouldn't even know that they were that to me in some ways but others who were formerly that who had a huge influence on me but but probably just this this realization that your your leadership could be a full expression of who you were and that that, that includes the stuff you're not so good at that includes the stuff of which you probably would prefer not to be part of who you are but it is who you are and so probably they're the two things now. And I think that then enables you to recognise that you can take responsibility. And the reason you can take responsibility is because you are actually are being responsible because your leadership is an expression of you. And you also then get to model the behaviours as well because you don't have to make up who you are every time you walk in the room. You can just be who you want to be. And that takes a bit of you know, bravery and vulnerability and all that sort of stuff. And that's probably a deep conversation as well. Well, it's a big shift from a full of himself 24 year old kid who's been around the game knows it all you know strong roots in the game and you do it the way i think it should be done to a much how flavorsome is the word that comes to mind (laughs) i'm thinking like a wine maturing um no 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 flavorsome is a good word i think because there is there's it's the layers which come with it it's you're creating your own folklore in some ways and and you're creating your own way and and that's going to be a product of of your experiences and you have a lot more experiences when you're in your 50s and you're doing your 20s so there's those there are those reflections and you've also met more people you've had more conversations you've gone deeper you've you've stuffed it up a few times you've and when you stuff it up do you play the blame game either blaming someone else or, or being too tough on yourself yeah that, there's all these sorts of things that you have to be able to bounce back from you mentioned shame as one of the feelings whether it was that feeling specifically, but the, a feeling of that nature around some of your decisions, not related to did you pick the right player or the right coach? What kinds of decisions did you make that caused that feeling? I think, again, coming back to that, when it, when it was more too egocentric, it was, in, it was too much about me, the, the decision lacked humility. And the good thing is that there's some, some of the most powerful figures in world sport now are now famously humble. Yeah, that that's what they're known for, and the club that I grew up with, which won't necessarily mean a lot to a lot of people, the Richmond Football Club, who's now the biggest, they've got over a hundred thousand members, so that, that's a big club at any world standard. And my father was the CEO of that club as well during a great success era, and and that club was famously aggressive. In, it was known as ruthless Richmond, you know, just ruthless. Like you'd rarely see ruthless as a value now, mm. but ruthless was a that was like everyone's sporting value. We're ruthless, and I, I get that there is a bit of ruthless about elite sport. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to turn it into something that it's not. But the Richmond Football Club of today, its number one value is humility, and it's successful and it's winning. And you know they've won two of the last three premierships, and they could have probably won the other one. All that stuff. And I had someone today, oh, a couple of days ago, who talked to me about the fact that he's always loved the club and 
there was some sort of aggressiveness about the club that everyone talked to, and that was their pride, that he said, for the first time in my life, this guy's now in his 50s, the club has values of which I can be proud of for the first time. Even though he's always loved them and supported them and their heroes and all that, he said, because I can talk to my children about this stuff or I can talk to the, I can use the example of what they've created in the workplaces and the teams that I'm seeking to create. That you can get people who can walk in the room and own up when they got it wrong. Not having to apologise, just say we got it wrong. And that takes a certain amount of courage. And as I said, humility and courage, I think, are very, very related. And I think, you know, Brené Brown's bravery piece and, and the bravery thing was often something that only I knew about. There, there might have been people who were close enough to it who might, who might say, oh, Cameron should go harder here or he should be tougher here or he should be whatever in these situations. But I knew there were times when I should have stepped into conversations. And I'm talking about conversation, literal conversations as well as sort of the, the greater conversation around what the values of the organisation. And I chose not to because I didn't have the courage to do so. And they're the times where they're the drive home ones or the stand in the shower moments or the when you're going for your walk and, and you can't get it out of your head or you wake up in the middle of the night. But the first mistake in not doing it, and I, I think all of us would have reflections where they sh we should have gone harder at some point or we should have said something that we didn't say. But then I didn't go back the second time. I didn't go back the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, because there was always an opportunity again, I reckon. And the theory, that I call it the first arrow, second arrow, third arrow theory, that if you get the first arrow wrong, well, that should at least be a line of sight for the second arrow, if you're like an archer on a, just lining up that arrow into a, looking for that bullseye. That, that getting it wrong the first time can at least be a line of sight for the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth effort. I need to go a bit higher, a bit lower, left, right. To give yourself that opportunity the second or the third time, you're then honouring leadership, I think. You're then coming back and saying, I'm serious about this stuff. Whereas if you're not a leader, you can sort of get away with it a bit, I think. But if you don't do it as the leader, you've just now dishonoured the role. That's the courage and the, yeah, and often it was the vulnerability thing as well, where you just weren't prepared to open yourself up and... Everyone loves the idea of authenticity, but they, they're, not, they're not nearly as keen on the vulnerability which the authenticity <laughs> requires, you know. So, so, and I've probably learned, again, I learned that later, and I've probably learned it at a time when it's actually been a bit easier to do it. You mean in terms of social, social context? Yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. And I, and I use, uh, I've got a transgender daughter, Evie, uh, you know, and I, I often talk of her, and, and we have conversations about the challenges of, of her, her life, which uh, I would never underestimate them, ever. Uh, and every so often I say, just so you know, our generation made this possible for you. You know, the, 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 there were... <laughs> I'm sure she's know, grateful. <laughs> but I, th I think in her own way she is because my generation would have really struggled with that in its own way. So it's, it's, even though there's sometimes small changes, they're really important ones, yeah. And, and, and that's never, I would never dilute from the stuff that she has to deal with, which I certainly haven't had to deal with in my life, you know, and, uh, and I would never try and speak on her behalf, but I can speak on my behalf as her parent, but I would never speak on her behalf because her, her challenges are real. You think your daughter's transgender experience has helped you move into those qualities of humility and courage? 
or is it a parallel experience, like separate but parallel? No, they're definitely related. I think probably uh, I've been always fairly open with my kids, with, and and they've also experienced it. They've they've lived the experience of my because from the moment that those kids went to school, they were asked whether they were any relation to, particularly in Victoria. You're in, and, and so there was always a layer of their lives which they had to lead in a way which is, and I had that myself, you know, as long as, as soon as I can remember ever explaining to someone who I was, as in I had a surname or something other than Cameron, they'd say, are you any relation to the bloke at Richmond? You know? And I'd wear it like a big badge of honour because I love the game and I was proud of my dad. And, and then by the time... My kids came around. I, I I wasn't sure that was a good thing, you know. It added a complexity and a layer to probably growing up. That, but these then these kids had no choices, and then they watched me as I ride the highs and the lows and, and all that. So I was always relatively open with them. So I think, hopefully, that then created a a platform whereby you know Evie at sixteen could come to me and have that conversation, because she knew that uh, I had my own war wounds, I had my own challenges, and and that I chosen to handle those challenges with varying degrees of success and otherwise you know and sometimes it was quite self-defeating and uh, and damaging to my well-being but again not wanting to ever show any anything other than um, I was tough enough and hard enough to handle the the life that my career and all that required of me when it didn't really, it never did, but I felt that it had to. So I think then, and then it becomes, then we get to learn from each other. And, and it's added this beautiful colour and flavour, you talk about flavour before to our lives. Like I, I've actually, over the last couple of years, been asked to speak at you know, Pride events and stuff like that. You know, things that, you know, as a, as a white heterosexual male, you know, uh, you know product of a you know, classic Melbourne suburban upbringing, I feel privileged to have, you know, have these conversations and, and, and people come to me and say, oh, you know, you must be a wonderful parent. And, I, and it just doesn't, it just doesn't sit with me. It just says, I, I don't think you, all you're doing is um, just giving your kids the best chance they can possibly have. And, and, and if, if that's in a, an agenda other than the one she was born into, well, that's, um, that's, that's sweet with me. Yeah, parenting, I'm not a parent, and I'm always full of admiration and heartful for parents when they sit in service to their kids, Uh, because no matter how many books are written about it, frickin' hell, it's it's a hard go. It's so complex and heart-wrenching. I was describing to my business manager, she was describing a situation she had with her daughter, and I said, you know, as a parent, it seems to me that you have your heart and you put it on the middle of a table with a sledgehammer next to it, and that's parenting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just it is. It, it is a great metaphor for leadership, though. One, it's like it's a it's as big a leadership role as you're going to play. And my my reflections on it is, and even when Evie when Evie was born, and Evie was was Lockie was Lachlan, and when you put the baby in the back of the car. Yeah, it goes from sort of the womb to the hospital to the back of your car. It's like it's, it's, it's too big a step, that one, you know. Like in, in the womb, it just seems it's invisible, you know. So, But you're hoping everything's going on in there that should be going on. And then I was a childbirth, all that. And then you're in the hospital itself and you push buttons and someone comes and helps you feed and do all that stuff, bathe, wash the baby. 
and then it's in the back of your rotten car and, you, and you're driving over the speed humps at about, I don't know, three kilometres an hour and you're sort of going sideways across the speed bump so you don't get the full impact of them, you know. And then six weeks later, you're just over the top, you know. It just is a... And, it, and I think that's a... It is a really good metaphor for, for leadership because your first days of leadership feels like that, you know. And I, I remember actually sitting in my office, it was... And I, and I was 24, I was young, and I remember sitting there and I had this... The office that I used to go and visit my father in on school holidays and it was only about 10 years earlier that I'd done that. And I'm sitting in that office, and, and Richmond are no good. Richmond, when he was there, were champions. Well, the time I got there, they're shockers. You know, we were last on the ladder and broke and all that stuff. <laughs> and, I, and I remember thinking, who do I ring now? I, I, I had no idea even who to ring. I had no idea how to feel, say, if I got into work at 8.30. I didn't know how I was going to feel between 8.30 and 5.30. No idea, none. And whereas up until that time, I just would actually go in to see my boss in the next office and say, look, I'm thinking, that, yeah, yeah, no, let's do a bit of that, but there's no one to tell you, you know. So um, I managed to get through that first day and after that I realised I was going to be pretty busy. <laughs> so sort of, the stuff comes to, the stuff starts to come to you a little bit. And it really hadn't formed in my head what it meant to be a leader and, and that's, that came over time. I suppose being a paper boy and then a recruiting guy was never going to actually, uh, was never going to really give me uh, that sort of understanding. No, a lot of leadership is learned in the trenches and having a go and coming up bruised, uh, bruised and battered. Sometimes it can feel like with leadership, I always think that, well, from my point of view, people stuff is both the most joyous and the most difficult thing to contend with. For you, what do you find challenging, if anything, about the people stuff in leadership? Now, all of it. All of it, from the recruitment through to the finishing up, you know, so the, from the cradle to the grave, you know, all of it, I think, is going to be challenging. But, but as you said, it's, um, you know, it's, it's the best and worst of it. And, and I think in, in any, any aspect of anything which is hard, and, and leadership is hard at its most fundamental level, and people often talk about, you know, the, the imposter syndrome as a leader. And I say, well, I think you always feel that way. I always felt somewhat of an imposter because you're always doing something which was hard because once you got better at something you just kept raising the bar and the ambition so you you're always going to challenge yourself if leadership ever became easy well somehow you've you're not setting the right standards and expectations of the organization so you know i think in the people stuff is you know it starts with the recruiting obviously and i think you've got to go into recruiting regardless of how hard and how even if you've got the most genius recruiting process of all time, and I'll talk about recruiting in a second, and you've made your appointment, you've got to almost come into it on the basis that there's it's still a 50-50 whether I've got it right or wrong. So even if you're so confident you've just got the best person for the job, you're still thinking at its very best it's still 50-50 because you may have got it wrong and if you've idealised your situation there, you then let it go way longer than it should and you're doing disservice to the person who's got the job and everyone around them, the people who are aligned on them, all those sorts of things because you've got, your pride's got in the road of actually recognising you got it wrong. That's crazy. And I'm not saying you're looking to them to fail because clearly no, I'm just saying it's 50-50 because if you get it wrong, I think your first loss is your best loss. You've got to move quickly. And again, that comes from experience. And, and that your first loss is your best loss is, is a saying from a coach I got to work with, Alan Jeans, who was just a wonderful, wonderful coach. Coming back to the recruiting, though, when the person, whatever your recruiting process is, 
once they've come into the room, whoever you're interviewing, and you've got past the weather and the traffic on the way in, you just got through the, I would just ask one question and it might take up the whole interview. And the one question is, have you ever taught yourself anything? Really? That's your go-to interviewing question. Have you ever taught yourself anything? And they go, oh, work-related? No, 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 anything in life. Anything in life. And I had this because I'm, I'm, I'm just coaching someone earlier today. I won't give away anything, but they, and I was explaining, you know, this sort of process and have you taught, because I think, Ultimately, you want to have people of high aptitude, you know, people who can actually take responsibility for their own development, all that type of thing. And I said, and that would be the first question. And then about two minutes later, I said, I bet you for the last two minutes, you've been thinking about something you've taught yourself, you know, or, or haven't taught yourself. And she said, oh, yeah, no, I've been thinking about it. I said, oh, what was it? And she said, no, I taught myself to play Under the Bridge by Red Hot Chili Peppers on guitar. Wow. And it took me forever. And I played a bit of guitar and, and I know exactly why she wanted to actually learn how to play that song. It's just, it's, it's, it's one of those always hard songs to play. It's always going to be that. And also it opened up this conversation because she now knows I play a bit of guitar. Now we actually have a talk about it. I said, I bet you then you try to do this. And it was, it was almost this, and you're just having, for about the next 10 minutes, her eyes lit up. She was talking about something she loved doing and a little challenge, a little, I said, how would you go if you, I said, how often do you play guitar now? She said, oh, not as much for kids. I go, how would you go if you had to play under the bridge? She goes, I reckon it'd take me a day, but I reckon I'd get it back. And these are the sorts of, comp and you could just imagine how an interview would take a different way of thinking. Someone's going to lean forward into the chair, unexpected, open up a conversation. You're actually talking about stuff. And if they haven't taught themselves anything, if they can't come up with one thing, and if they say, they say you, know, I, you know, I've taught myself how to cook and they're relying on HelloFresh turning up every three days or something like that, that's not teaching yourself how to cook, you know. But if they say, oh, I know, I wanted to, you know, they, I go down to the market, I choose this, I do that, I get, this is my favourite spice, I grow it in the backyard, I do, the whole energy of the conversation changes. But if they haven't taught themselves, well, I just reckon that means you just don't employ them. You want people who are prepared to take responsibility. You want people who are going to be, who are going to actually come to you and challenge you and say, I think there's a better way. I've been reading up on this. I've been looking at this book. By the way, have you read this book here? Are you listening to this podcast here? They're the people I want walking in my room. Yeah. And, and if you actually then go from that and then the other thing I'd then do is take them out of the environment of which is the normal interview environment. Arrange to go for a walk with them in the middle of the day or do something. Put them into an environment which isn't the normal day-to-day -day one that they live. And just find out and watch how they interact with other people if you're having, although it's a little bit different at the moment, you can't just, the cafe scene's a little bit different. But if, you know, see how they interact with people around them. If they're rude to the person who's making the coffee, if they're just this little simple things, I think. That's awesome. Because ultimately, if you want to have someone working with you and for you, you want them to be with you for five, six, seven, eight years, ideally. Even now, you know, in the times where, you're going through periods of change and stuff's happening in your life. Well, the other people who are ringing you up and saying, how are you going? How are you handling all this stuff? Because you've actually built this thing based on just really good. And ultimately, they could do the job as well. They were actually good at doing their job. Yeah. You know, they had the functional capability and the attitude, but they had the aptitude. I love that. That's the key. Uh, so we've talked about failure through this conversation and ups and downs and lessons and insights. I'm curious now after four CEO roles and now as a mentor to CEOs, 
How do you define success now as compared to when you were a 24-year-old young gun? I've always actually, I've always just liked, um, and it sound, this is going to sound a little bit strategic, I always just like a simple measurement of performance versus expectations. So, because we get to define both really. So what that is, is have we matched ambition and capability? And sometimes, and the jobs that I took in, in my CEO career, or the jobs that I had, not that I took, the ones that I got the opportunity having, were generally clubs in some form of crisis. You know, there was a lot going on. And, and that wasn't because that's what I was looking for. That's because they were the ones looking for CEOs. Basically, that's where the opportunities were. They had situation vacant next to their, you know, they had empty chairs in their CEO's office because they weren't necessarily, you know, something had happened which the club had ended up in some form of crisis. And so, that, and that's different mentality towards it. So, so therefore, sometimes you might have standards and expectations that you have as a leader coming into an organisation of which the organisation isn't ready for those standards and expectations. So, because often it has to build on its own learning. So, you need to take a whole new group of people. My sister teaches um, hearing impaired kids, but as part of it, she's last couple of years she's gone back and she's teaching prep kids. You know, she's back into the, teaching the preppy kids. And I just imagine the frustrations of taking a whole group of kids through that wonderful learning experience, knowing that 12 months later, you're going to have to start with a whole new group of kids again and take them through. And they're going to have their own independent, individual ways about them. Well, I think leadership's a bit like that. You can't fast track certain learning. Certain aspects of learning needs to be organic. Even though you can stand up as the leader and say, we're doing this, we're doing that. You go, well, they're going to have to work this stuff out for themselves. So even reducing expectations at different times is actually part of being a leader. So therefore performance versus expectations is the critical measurement. So if you're only at this level of capability at this point, don't try and create crazy ambition where all you're doing is bringing almost a, a bullshit element to their existence where they're saying, well, I can't, we're not at that level yet. You know, I had years where I knew that our team, we played a 22-game season in the AFL, where I knew we were only capable of winning between two and five games. So what does winning look like when you're not winning, as an example? Tell me what success looks like when we're not being successful in the way that the world measures success. And if you can actually say, well, I can break that down if we improve in these three areas, if we improve in those two areas, that then becomes the platform for the next layer of learning, the next layer of development. And before we know it, in three, four, five, six years' time, we will be competing with those, those good teams, those good clubs. Oh, that's really insightful. That's really great. Cam, I'm also curious about you're a deep thinker and a deep learner. What's a book or a resource, could be a podcast, could be something, that has served you well that you keep coming back to time and time again? Uh, Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Really? It's probably been my, yeah, probably my number one. I read it when I was 14 because you had to read it because I went to a school which told us to read it. And I don't know how much of the story people know, but it's about a, an old fisherman and a young boy, basically, and the old fisherman goes out to sea on his own, catches the biggest fish of his life, which is big marlin, and, and he has the fight of his life and, the, and has these amazing reflections when he's out at sea. And, and by the time he comes back into, um, back into shore, the marlin's been attacked by sharks. So there's only the skeleton of the marlin left. You know? So when I first read the book, I read it through the eyes of the boy. And then I went away on um, the house that I stayed in regularly during holidays, had 
Old Man in the Sea as the, just in their bookcase. And I picked it up again when I was 20 and I realised the book had changed between the ages of 14 and 20. <laughs> Funny how that happens. Yeah, I'm going re- to read the book every year of my 20s. And I did. And every year sort of changes because that's the, you get married, you have kids. The, it was just that stage of life, you know, and I was taking roles in 40. And, and then I read it again recently and um, it's a wonderful audible. I'm trying to remember who narrates it. And I'm now in my 50s and the book had changed all over again. I'm sort of more like the old man, I think, you know, in my own way. And, and an old man, when Ernest Hemingway wrote the book, probably was a man in his 50s. You know, that was an old man, you know. I'm, I'm 56. I'm, my father died 52. So I, it's that sort of the context in, in some way. I could read that book every, and it's only 120 pages, 110 pages. And so when I do my leadership programs, that's the book I give is Old Man in the Sea. Wow. For that reason. Those who love their sport and love the meta, the genuine metaphor of sport, because there's a lot of bullshit metaphor of sport as it applies to, to life and work and all of that. There's a great book called Legacy, which is based on the All Blacks, the New Zealand All Blacks, who've yeah. got wonderful sort of mantra as well as huge performance of the winningest sporting club ever um, or sporting team ever. And this is going to sound really basic. And we, you and I both had an introduction to this book. Old Man, uh, Atomic Habits is... Um, by James Clear is one of those books which every 15 pages, you almost have to put it down to go, well, how come this wasn't given to me when I was 14, you know? You know? And there's just a, there's a line in it. We don't rise to the level of our, our ambition we, or level of our goals. We, we rise to the level of our systems. And that's that performance versus expectation. Yeah, that's a, it's a really solid book. And I think... Um the craft that he put into that book and just in terms of distillation of the key messages, I think yeah. is, is admirable for just from a writing point of view, let alone a concept point of view. Yeah, It is. Yeah. And, and there's another one I just recently read and I know that's always a bit of a trap when it's um, recent in your mind. There's a book called lost connections and oh, I can't remember the author. Um, it's all right. I'll Google it. And someone who's struggled with sort of mental health issues at different times, um, Again, it was one of those just make sense books where, where it talked about what you'd almost call the pharmacy response to mental health, which is people who haven't struggled with mental health might say, well, that's not a book I need to read. But it talks about the, the importance of the way that we connect to various things, you know, and, and the conversation we've had here is how we, how we connect to what we do, you know. So how do I connect as a leader to who I am? And, and I... I, I have struggled in life when I didn't have the connection of, as I mentioned, I, I didn't want to be a a CEO for CEO's sake. I wanted to run football clubs. That was where I was going to find the meaning through the game as well as hopefully producing something which had a legacy in the game as well. I always do this little piece on on purpose and I think it's sort of, if it was in a triangle, it would sit on meaning and it's got connection and it's got belonging on its side. It would just, and if we haven't got those things, every chance that you, there's other parts of you which are going to be going to be lost. And so I found even for people who haven't had you know, mental health issues but have periods of their life where they're very down and it's always on the cusp of that perhaps, is feeling of connection. He talks a lot, and I know this is really important for you, this connection to nature. How do you actually take yourself back to nature? But nature doesn't necessarily have to be climbing mountains. Nature might be actually just spending, you know, uh, half an hour in your herb garden, you know, it doesn't have to be that. And 
because there's such a pharmaceutical response to things because we if we can take a pill to get better well that seems like a really good outcome but mental health isn't a headache you know Mm. because i talk openly about mental health myself i find my i find that other people come to me talking about it i almost now say look as we have this conversation just take in this book and listen to it on audible it'll take you 12 hours or whatever it will be and then let us have the conversation and tell me what decisions you then took as a result of listening to that which one of these you know he's got seven or eight framings of it which one of those did you relate most to and there was actually a stage where i had to stop the book and i just cried because I, I realized that there was a, something which was sitting at the heart of what some of the challenges I've had. And, you know, having to talk about some of the more physical challenges in, in recent times, but just actually say that's where it started. And, and it started so early for me. And, and I wondered why at different times when I went on to medication for, for various issues that I didn't find that it had the response for me. Because it could never actually, it couldn't actually bring me back the connection lost that is actually what the I needed as part of my health. I had to find another mechanism of connecting, not a way of changing the amount of serotonin my brain was producing. If you know what I mean, it was just a, mm. it was just a different, or the other ways of producing serotonin. If you, if you like, so it's just, and I found it to be profound, and it's good that um, at different stages of life you can actually find something as simple as someone who helps you make sense of a piece of you which you are always going to just find almost a an obstacle too big a door which couldn't be opened so i'd say in answering your question about books one sort of like a childhood folklore one's about the beauty and the real learnings of sport one's about You've got to be organised. You can't achieve anything in your life unless you stay vaguely organised. Fourth one's about the powers of connection. That's beautiful. And I love that that's what you're doing in your world now. You know, you're bringing together community, you're connecting genuinely with people and helping them connect genuinely with others. And Cam, this has been such a, a deep and rich conversation. I'm sad that it's ending. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed the poetry that has been this conversation. Oh, thank you. So thank you so much for sharing your world and your insights and your and your beautiful wisdom. You're lovely. Thank, thank you. Thanks very much, Zoe. You know, it's been great getting to know you and we'll, we'll have many good chats, I reckon, over the years. I hope so. <laughs> we will. Cam and I share a lot in common. As we mentioned at the beginning of the interview, we've both been through cancer. We both love working with CEOs and we're both passionate about leadership. I think from his experience and his insight, one of the chords that really rang true for me was this idea of humility and courage as being the cornerstones to effective leadership. And really, they are a rallying cry, a raison d'être, of course, French had to come out. <laughs> a reason for being as a leader is to show up with humility and courage and to do the best that we've got with what we have. I love this conversation with Cam. You can just feel the depth of richness in the conversation and his world experience. 
And there are many, many more stories to be had. So what a joy. If you loved it as much as I did, please press the share button. It'd be good for me, good for you, and good for the person that you share it with. Thanks so much. In the meantime, live well, lead well.